Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. Every week, I'm pumped up. But this week, especially, we have a special guest. She's now a frequent flyer on our podcast, Eric Bo- Erica Borderman. She has done so many great things in emergency management. She knows our director of strategy, Zach Bors. He's also the host at EM Weekly really well. And so that's how we originally got connected, if you guys all remember that. So big shout out to Zach real fast. But uh, we have some big announcements that she uh, put out on LinkedIn. We all saw that. Erica, you just completed your tenure as the president of NEMA. So congratulations. Oh, hold on. We never get to use these. Do you hear that? Do you hear the, the cheer? Um, so congratulations there. Uh, from emergency managers, there's so many different organizations and acronyms, especially those getting out of college right now. We have a lot of listeners in school right now. Can you give us a brief overview of what NEMA is and what your job was there, your role? Sure. And first, I'm so glad to be a frequent flyer now. And usually a negative connotation, but not today. Oh, is that? Is that? I feel, oh, we got to use a different vernacular then. I always say that. Uh, we are proud to host the recurring. Sure. Sure, Anyways. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to be back. Um, I. The last time I was here, I had so much fun just kind of geeking out on emergency management things. And you don't get to do that often in my role. Uh, so it was great to talk with you last time. That's awesome. Um, as you mentioned, I just uh, completed uh, uh, my year as uh, the National Emergency Management Association president. Um, <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a fantastic year. Um, NEMA is a wonderful organization. Uh, and um, I'm very, very excited for the incoming president, uh, director of Tennessee, Patrick Sheehan, um, who he is uh, also an emergency management geek. Uh, we get down many rabbit holes when we talk to each other. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Um, uh, NEMA, just if, if anybody uh, wants to know what they do, they're really um, a state emergency management um, advocacy and uh, policy association. Um, we generally meet uh, twice a year, uh, one time in, in D.C. and one time uh, in the uh, president's state um, for the annual forum. Um, NEMA is uh, comprised of a lot of different uh, committees, areas of focus, um, such as response and recovery, mitigation, well, it's resilience now, um, and, uh, and diversity and equity, um, so really areas of focus where we can talk about uh, relevant policy, uh, relevant legislation, um, hear best practices uh, from other states, um, so great information sharing ground, um, and it's one of the best ways, in my opinion, to uh, foster what is ever so important in emergency management, which is our relationships. Um, it just there are there are many times where I have uh, talked personally with another state director um, because I needed something from them or they needed something from me, and that relationship was fostered at NEMA. So um, I was really really honored and. Um, continue to be honored to be their press president. Uh, it was a great, fun year. I spent two years as their vice president, uh, learning from the former presidents of Merrick in Ohio. Um, just, uh, it, it is an excellent opportunity for somebody who is passionate about how policy and law impact a 
uh, the ability of a disaster survivor to mm. um, to come through the impact of a disaster and come through it better than than when they went into that disaster. That's my goal as an emergency manager. That may seem pretty blue sky, um, may seem like a moonshot that somebody should be stronger after a disaster than they were going into the disaster. But um, that's really, I think our role as emergency managers is to lessen the impact on survivors and make sure that they can come out better than they went in. Um, NEMA is the vehicle to impact uh, those policy changes and uh, and to advocate for program changes that make a difference in the lives of people on the ground. Real quick, we're gonna pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue in collapsed and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. Instinct Ready Kits are awesome. Compact, fully loaded, and easy to place around your office, school, campus, warehouse, wherever. I keep a quick pack in my vehicle and one at home. Imagine Instinct Ready fully loaded Stop the Bleed Kits in every school and office. Get Instinct Ready Kits and training at InstinctReady.com. Okay, let's jump back in. Okay, you just first of all, good mic drop there at the end. Um, there, you just named about fifteen different topics of state level emergency management that I want to dive into, and we're going to see sure. if we can do all these in like rapid fire. In fact, in our first season, we would we would do this section called rapid fire, where I just ask people like random questions, EM related, not EM related questions, and just see how fast I can answer. So we're not going to do that. But um, in terms of state emergency management. Um, is NEMA a 501c6 because you guys are influencing policy? Are you seriously had to ask me this question? I don't have, <laughs> I don't, don't have our executive director, Trina. <laughs> next to us. Really? I have to ask her this. I don't know. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. I'll ask her. Um, okay. But in terms of like, for like the listener's standpoint, uh, groups that can advocate for policy and, um, like almost like lobby, it's, it's like a C6. So I was just curious, but, um, you know, the state they're of Missouri, I gotta tell not you, a lobbying. Oh, interesting. interesting. Um, because you are state directors. Is made of state emergency management. Yeah. So we are, um, government officials. And, um, so we make up the governance of the, of the association. So we Copy. cannot lobby. Um, but certainly there is a lot of, um, of education that goes on of, of, of those back and forth information sharing about what our position is on, on certain, um, you know, in certain policies, uh, we get a lot of um, outreach from congressional staff and uh, and FEMA especially um, to just get our take on what our feedback is on whatever the issue du jour is. Yeah. Okay. That's that makes a lot of sense. In the state of Missouri, uh, this this round where I'm I'm located at, they just voted to pull the National Guard out of the state public safety group. So the National Guard will be its own group on that. Um, I have lots of feelings on that. In fact, I voted for it. I typically don't tell people I vote, but I think this is one of those things where I, 
I wanted the National Guard because I worked so closely with so many National Guard units to not be influenced by the other groups in the state of Missouri, for example, um, the like the very known secret is that it's like sheriffs. Like if you're a former sheriff, you're going to be in emergency management for our state. And so I liked the idea of um, National Guard not being influenced by a party that has an incredible, incredibly important focus, but a focus nonetheless, rather than the entire scope. And so in terms of like, I always screw this up, either Title 10 or 30, 30, 32 forces, whether it is in, in states, the state perspective of disaster response, National Guard units are like so influential in so many different ways. Like they help out with, um, you know, whether it's um, uh, public unrest or they're, they're doing holy stuff of roofs, but they're answering to the state entity, you know, the governor essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspective, from both NEMA and from maybe Vermont, your own perspective, what is the role of the National Guard and how can they be the most influential for good from the emergency management perspective? Hmm. Like should... oh, that's a great question. I, yeah. I, we have such a great relationship um, in Vermont with our National Guard. Um, I've actually known our, I've known our adjutant general since I was like a small child. And he really? likes to tell people that. Yes, he's... That's awesome. <laughs> he, he likes to tell people that. Well, that is Vermont. Like, you know, everybody that you know knows somebody or your family members. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a small state, um, but it's kind of cool, right? Like from a state perspective, yeah. It's yeah. cool like that, yeah. So, you know, our National Guard um, is, uh, the. I, I would say, and they would say this too, that they're really meant to be force multipliers of last resort. Um, and they're, they're very good about, um, you know, making sure that they're not in competition with, um, you know, with the local economy or with another mm-hmm. function that can be, uh, that can be carried out by some other area of the community. Um, this really came into focus during COVID um, because we really relied on the Guard for quite a few functions like mass vaccinations and um, emergency feeding with you know, commodity um, points of distribution. Yeah. So, so um, sometimes the National Guard can just get it done faster because they have such a strong command structure and because that's how they're built. Um, and that is a real, uh, just a real strong um, characteristic that doesn't always exist. And, um, and you as a state entity or state emergency manager don't have to as closely manage them as, say, a private contractor you might have to or um, another, another entity. Um, so we, we've been pretty lucky with them. Um, and, but it takes a lot of, a lot of that relationship building. Um, we didn't always have a really super close relationship. Um, I just uh, went to do a senior leadership, um, like educational seminar with one of their retired generals. Um, so it was a bunch of 06s in the room. And, um, you know, me telling them that, um, you know, they, they don't tell us what to do. <laughs> That's sort of um, a fun, fun moment. Yeah. No, they, they, they already understand that. It's really yeah, they when do. You come, yeah. you come into that moment where, you know, somebody has a difference of opinion and, um, you know, you just can't have, you got to put egos aside 
and focus on the mission. Mm. Some people do yeah. that really well and some people just don't. So, um, yeah. but anyway, I think it's interesting that the guard, I didn't realize that they were in like the department of public safety in the state of Missouri. Um, yeah. We, really we just voted not anymore. We just voted to pull them out. Yeah. Um, so. cause ours is not, they're in the military department, which, you know, is just the guard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so that's, that actually, um, it works out well when you, when you look at like the type of support that they provide, it's across the spectrum of, you know, emergency support functions. So they don't actually have their own emergency support function because they support everybody. <laughs> right. Well, that's what that's, and that's kind of what I've been kind of playing with. So I work really closely with task force 46. We had Colonel McKinney on here who, uh, for the audience sake, for the reminder, task force 46 was given the mission to do all the seaburn chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear exercises and responses for the United States with NORCOM. So although they are a national guard unit, technically out of Michigan, their, their members are members all over the United States. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Higgins is out of New York city. Their seaburn expert is out of Montana. They're all national guard people. And one of the, I, I might get roasted here by the expert in the room, but also my audience I think from the state perspective, there is, uh, it's not an all or nothing, but there is a pitch for National Guard units to run large-scale disasters because they come with so much and they are so well-trained. One of the biggest problems I have with emergency management is that there's no true standardization. And if we were truly standardized and we could we could trust the competencies of the person coming into the room, then that would be a little bit easier. But from the state's perspective, um, when when National Guard units say, oh, yeah, we should run disasters. For me, I always make the pitch like, no, duh, I'm an emergency manager. I'm going to push really hard for that. But secretly, I'm like, OK, it's not like 100 or zero. I mean, I think there's like a 30 percent reason why maybe they, they should. Do you completely reject that idea with your relationships and, and, and how you've seen it happen? Or do you think that there is uh, a place for, you know, the National Guard, i.e. what happens if FEMA, I want to say collapsed, but closed, right? Like who is managing a lot of these big responses when 80% of FEMA responses are $8 million or under and most state, you know, most states, that's not, that's not a reason for FEMA to come in, for example. You see what I'm tra tracking track here? Don't roast me too yeah, much. I, mean, I, think it's, I was just hearing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, it's an interesting topic and interesting question. Um, I, I, I'll just say unequivocally, no. <laughs> I had a I feeling you might that. say that. I had a feeling. I can't say, okay, I can't because, you know, my father is going to be listening to this podcast and he's a retired national person. Like, oh. <laughs> I had a feeling you might say that as a state director, as an emergency manager, now as a father, like, and I get it. Like emergency management should be the hub. I get it. Um, but I think more of my pitch is that like the discipline and the skill sets and the tools that a National Guard unit brings are well known and they're organized and they're standardized and like they're clean. Like if I give a mission over to the National Guard, I know they're going to run with it. I still like being the guy in charge, technically, because there's other things to do. But whatever that mission is, I've been highly impressed by their level of professionalism in completing that. 
And I do think a little bit on our side of the house, we can learn, at least learn from it of across the board. People like you, people like Zach, you know, maybe me, but like we get it. We've been in the trenches. We've done the job. Um, But as a field, we are still trying to figure out our place. And it it does come from, in my opinion, a little bit of lack of standardization. Um, You know, we use one word, for example, to mean everything. And we're, we're trying to find those clear lanes. So yeah, it's something I, think, I, I toy you know, with because, you know, I'm that guy. A, I mean, there's a baseline reason why it wouldn't work and that's legal. Um, you yeah. know, they can't, you know, they just, for them to manage a, um, a civilian emergency uh, or have the, they don't actually have the legal authority to do so. Copy. Um, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, I mean, you make a really good point when, you know, during, during COVID, um, the state of Vermont didn't really, we had our, our SNS uh, warehouse um, and the SNS program, and that was housed under the Department of Health. But um, we quickly realized that we need to set up an entire medical logistics mission to be able to handle all of the, you know, the PPE, the, the vaccines once they came in. Um, and we didn't, we don't have a warehouse in Vermont. Um, we don't warehouse commodities for disasters. It's not something we've ever done. So I said, we need somebody that, ha- that has some subject matter expertise, that is a logistician, that knows how to set this up. Um, we created a branch in the State Emergency Operations Center that incorporated the SNS warehouse, but also passed National Guard leadership with basically developing the medical logistics mission in Vermont. And they did it succinctly, smoothly they would they put a lot of work into it and there was just utmost professionalism and what what they basically did is they they took it built it um operated operated it and then when they needed to transition it over to the civilian authorities because they can only work for a certain amount of time because they're largely a volunteer force (laughs) or a part-time force um they were able to hand it over in a package with a nice bow um and that's, you know, that's a great example of, um, you know, kind of a non, uh, not, not a really normal um, task that you would normally task the National Guard with. But yeah. they, they understood the challenge. They rose to the occasion and they got it done. Um, but when it comes to, say, um, some of the humanitarian aspects of disasters and long-term recovery, you just, I don't think you can overcome the, the, the necessity for um, state and, and local government agencies to have a, that central point of coordination that, that are civilians. Mm. Um, because like it or not, um, the Guard is, they, they are good for um, short bursts, but they're not built for the long-term, um, that. you know, the long-term uh, long haul emergency management so yeah and that's that that was so you you named the 70 percent reason and that's why like you're so good at your what what we're talking about one of the reasons why we went to back because you know what you're talking about the 70 percent was legal they they literally can't uh calling out pete gainer for a second somebody asked him that question is like well why can't we separate this the like the all the politics out of emergency management he's like it's built in you are representing the legal authority so great call out there and the other, the other problem that I, big problem I have with the National Guard, because it gets that they're 30%, but that 70% is like, 
you just you just perfectly summarized how they are one of the spokes in a hub and you gave them a mission assignment you did this thing but they do have to step out and eventually somebody has to look the long-term program um geez like talk about like knowing your stuff uh, i didn't prepare you for that question at all either i was just kind of curious at your, your original take um well i guess i mean i i want to qualify like i I love the National Guard. I love the Vermont oh, yeah. National Guard. Um, and of course, we all I, do. We have a long, we have a long history together. Like I said, it's in my family. So. <laughs> well, I like the Air National Guard out of, uh, or you know, because of Zach. So good call yeah. out to him again. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, uh, and, and I, I agree. Like it's no disrespect for them, uh, but to say like emergency manager has to do it. Uh, but also, like you know, there's some there's some complexities, legal complexity as, as well as the long term stuff. Well, I also think when we're talking about that, we're I mean, you're I think what you're thinking about is like the response, right? But yeah. there's emergency management spectrum, and yeah, we, you know, so there's so much more to it, and I know it's not as flashy, and I start talking about policy and people blaze right over but policy, policy changes everything for you though right i mean it is yeah. the crux of win or lose half the time most of yeah. the time it's it's yeah. what makes the difference the long-term difference and in, yeah. in what and in, in survivors experience yeah so, including yeah. the policy makers uh i have been at disasters all over this country and the policy makers who get on board with emergency management and who uh, the emergency manager, I'm going to call them, this is for emergency managers, right? So emergency managers who work well with their policymaker, whether that policymaker is good, bad, or ugly, doesn't really matter. If they can work well with them, then they can get stuff done. If the policymaker gets in the way because of good, bad, or ugly, or even best intentions, uh, the disaster gets derailed every single time. And um, I think... You know, it's a, it's such a, because again, built in, um, looking at 2023 and beyond, I still want to keep on this NEMA thing about states because I'm, I'm hyper curious about it. But, you know, we've been attacking from the readiness lab perspective, the ability to, uh, to work well with others. We talk about communication so much and we say the word collaboration, but what does that actually mean? And one of the things is just, you know, as human to human, being able to work well with other people so you can accomplish the mission, right? Um, so there's there's that whole side of the house. But I want to go back to NEMA and the policies that NEMA are pushing. Like you, you mentioned diversity and inclusion. That is obviously a huge topic right now. If anybody doesn't think that's a topic, they're going to lose out. They're going to lose out on funding. They're going to lose out on opportunities. They're going to learn it. They're going to lose out on learning opportunities even. And uh, so, like, that's one component. Uh, what are, you know, former president of NEMA, what are the policies for emergency managers that we should be aware of that we should also try to push at the state level? Um, well, so if you, if you qualify this about um, as it under the umbrella of NEMA, uh, there were a number of things that we pushed. Um, and everybody, when you come on as president of the organization, they go, well, what's your platform? And, you know, coming out of coming out of COVID, that was a very hard thing to qualify <laughs> because, yeah. um, because there was, because we had focused so long on COVID that there were, there, it was like a backlog of issues that we needed to address. And so it was really hard to, to say, well, this is the issue. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, 
one of the areas of focus was around diversity and equity. Um, we organizationally we are uh, have committees that put focused attention um, over the long term in the certain areas, so like response and recovery, resilience, or uh, legislative issues. Um, and I felt it was really important that we. Mm-hmm give the same focus effort um, around the diversity and equity issues that are inherent in emergency management policy, um, in the way that disasters um, occur, who gets impacted, um, and then also thinking about um, who are working disasters and diversifying our workforce. Um, So we signed an MOU with the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion and Emergency Management, um, which is, which are um, some pretty wonderful people, uh, and they joined us at the at the uh, at the I think it was, yeah, it was the mid year um, to uh, to sign that MOU, and it was really to um, place uh, one of their leadership, um, who was Curtis Brown, the former director in Virginia, um, mm-hmm. as the co chair, along with Don Brantley, who's the currently the, the director in Massachusetts, um, as the leadership of that group. They've they've brought you know different perspectives to the table um and i think just really making sure to shine a spotlight on those issues because it's not self-evident if you're even you could be a long a, a lifetime emergency manager and um depending on your background depending on what you bring to the table you may not even be aware of the inequities that are inherent in some of these programs um and so it's it's eye-opening i think um, we need to continue that that discussion, um, and we need to continue the action to overcome those inequities. We just, I mean, just as an example, um, when we talk about hazard mitigation uh, and the the projects that get funded under hazard mitigation versus the projects that are not successful, um, I think if you looked at them and you looked at um, you know, the, the economic disparities between those applicants, I think it would be very telling that the applicants that have the resources to do project development are much more successful in getting them funded. You just called out that, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It, so so well, that, that's, that's an example. Um, uh, that part is actually... Go ahead. Uh, sorry, that, that part is I like, going, so you gotta, you gotta cut me off. <laughs> actually, I don't want to cut you off. I, I want you to keep going. In fact, uh, it was just kind of a sidebar of like, man, the, the applicants, the people who have the most money, who have the policy, who have the people who have, they always get so much funding and you get in there and you're like, the people who needed it don't get it. The process sucks. Let's be real. The hazard mitigation funding process is horrible whether yeah. it's from the state or the federal level. Um, we could talk about advocacy all we want, but until somebody actually says like, hey, we have to change how we're going to do this. Um, and I know we're trying to address it, but like, let's get to solutions faster than what we're getting to because in the meantime of the conversation, the real world is still happening where the people who are suffering suffer more. It's just like when insurance rates and everything goes up, the people who you know, are at the middle or the top suffer a little bit, but the people who's at the bottom, it's not proportional. They suffer so much more. Right. Right. Anyways, talk about that all yeah, day long. But. It, yeah. And we really could talk about it all day long. Um, and I, I think we try to, in Vermont, we really try to overcome those inequities. Um, but it's, you know, it's with the resources you have. 
Um, when the ARPA program came out, we got very excited about the fact that they wanted projects around that had to do with water quality, because in Vermont, um, flooding resilience is also a water quality issue. And so we created a new program called the Flood Resilient Communities Fund, which funds projects um, and you know a lot of uh, buyout projects at 100% um, for and as specifically for properties that are outside of the special flood hazard area. But as we all know, those those flood maps are either not particularly up to date um, or they don't really reflect what the risk the flood risk is. Um, and so that's particularly um, uh, important in Vermont with our topography. So we're able to fund uh, uh, resilience projects, really. Um, they are uh, hazard mitigation projects that are outside of the special flood hazard area where they wouldn't be an eligible project for FEMA. Um, we're able to fund them at 100%. We're able to move efficiently and effectively um, and and actually uh, turn around these projects much quicker. Um, That's awesome. I, I, yeah, and I, I just you know it's, it's such a powerful tool to have. Um, yeah. We're 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 concerned about what what happens when the ARPA money goes away because this has just been such an effective program, um, and it's a force multiplier for the federal program. Um, so we just I I'm hopeful that we can find a vehicle to to continue the good work, but. There is a there is a moment in a disaster. I'm a data guy. Um, I like data, <clears throat> and uh, there isn't really great systems. In fact, I was just talking to a software company about this. When I get out there to a, a hurricane or a wildfire starting up, or hurricane is actually probably the easier example in this one, but we start to do planning for that hurricane. They show me their plan, but the, there's typically not a lot of data, historical data in there, and not enough. And I'm like, literally just show me a GIS, you know, like just map it, overlay your last 10 years. I understand disasters are getting worse, more frequent, bigger the whole deal. But as a starting point, if I can look at last 10 years, last 20 years, last 30 years, and just overlay literally where all the problems were, I have a pretty good guess of where to start of where it's going to go. The, the flooding, the flood maps are outdated. And insurance companies are not using them anymore for a reason. It's not a great predictive of, you know, cost and re rebuilding. But if I wanted to mitigate disasters in the blue sky, and if I wanted to respond and stage things faster in gray sky, like literally just show me exactly where it went before. And we just go there as a starting point. And, um, I have yet to see that really done effectively. We also have artificial intelligence. We have quantum computing. We have all this stuff, all these tools now. But this is getting to a whole other topic. Um, you know, uh, Google has billions and billions of shapes. They know the shape of a door handle from every direction. They know the shape of a shingle from every direction, what a house is supposed to have. Drone flying over in real time, which a good friend of mine, Eric, is working on right now. Could call it to him. As it's flying over in real time, it's telling you where all the damages are and how 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 much has been lost because it's supposed to be there and it's not. And like the fact that like we're we're still trying to like figure this out based off of like one event or two event or a predictive analysis that isn't isn't reliable as you just called out the flood in you know flood maps. Um, I wonder if we can make that more effective. And that's where dollars go first, right? Yeah, it's not about anything. I mean, 
impact? There's, there's, I think there are ways to do that. Um, and, you know, in Vermont, the Agency of Natural Resources has mapped the river corridor, which are basically buffer areas yeah. outside of the special flood hazard area. Um, right. And I talk about a lot about flooding, but, you know, one of our other big hazards here is um, is ice and uh, in snow. I will not say snow. Snow is not a hazard in Vermont. Snow oh. is an economic development tool. In <laughs> Fair enough. It's a way so, of life. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we really hate ice. <laughs> um, That's hilarious. And so, you have a lot of know, ice dams, like ice breaks on your rivers. Is that a big problem for flooding for you guys? Yes. Um, that's definitely something we watch very closely um, and work with the river forecast, the Northeast River Forecast Center. Um, mm. There's a whole science behind ice jams, which is actually pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, when you, when you think about um, snow and ice on, uh, on power lines and communication lines, um, it's, mm. that's very difficult to forecast um, with predictive analysis on what, what the impact is going to be. There are a couple of firms out there that do that. Um, I know that uh, one of my um, one of my colleagues who uh, um, started Northview Weather, and I know they were acquired, but they do predictive analysis for utilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just super, it's very fascinating because they, they can basically say, based on the forecast, here's where your outages were, are gonna be in, you know, in this range of confidence um, yeah. And uh, so that they can preposition their assets uh, in those areas. I mean, it's just it's it's really fascinating, and I know that it may not be as applicable for everyone around the country, but for areas where they get a lot of snow and ice, that's very um, that that's a really powerful tool. Not everybody has to deal with hurricanes. Not everybody has to deal with wildfires. There's a lot of other th- threats out there. Tornadoes in the Midwest. That's like our really big one. Flooding as well. But, um, you know, it makes everybody nervous. We have perennial burns from nuclear waste uh, behind a high school, not only 20 miles from my house because it's part of the Manhattan Project. Every time it floods, they think about it. Like, there's everywhere has its unique things, like burning nuclear waste. Let's talk about that for a second. Near a high school. Um, Yeah, like (laughs) urban planning and emergency management, kind of important. Okay, so we went on these kind of fun tangents for a second. Actually, I'm going to hold on one second. I have never been paid, but I should probably be paid. They don't even know I exist, most likely. This is like my favorite book, Social Vulnerabilities to Disaster. It is such a great research of actually going into the data. Uh, It was like all these these, uh, studies done by the UN and a bunch of other groups of like what happens to diversity and inclusion and the, the lack of um of uh, thinking about those and one of the things again this other tangent we were addressing now our company specifically because we were just hired to do it uh is to help out with mass notifications and strategy around people who typically let's say don't have a high reading proficiency or different cultural background when they get all cap text for their you know public messaging and so there's, there's so many different areas of how to get people to react the way you want them to in a positive way that will save their life. And then there's also so many ways to go to them and say, like, what do you need? And you tell me. And we're getting better at that. Um, and so great call out there. I just want to round out that part because that's a book. Again, one day I better get royalties for this or something because I've told people about it. So many times. <laughs> if my audience, if you're listening to this, by the way, if my audience has not has not read Social Vulnerability to Disasters, 
it's embarrassing because I've brought it up on like 30 different episodes. But um, that being said, rounding out the, the state conversation, because we're a little bit over time now, state conversation, emergency managers who are taking jobs in the states. We talked about this a little bit before. You're a state director. You've, you've talked about hiring the right people before. Let's talk about the leadership side as working with all these other state directors, um, 50, as I'm aware, uh, you know, if you're working with all these other states, what are the lessons learned of how to run an effective program? If I'm in a state or if I'm going to another company, how do you actually run that program now? Yeah, I think um, we, I, this, I, like I said before, we started the podcast. This is a really, this is a time of year where a lot of people get really reflective um, about the past year and about where they're going. And I think we as emergency management leadership are kind of in a inflection point where we're um, we've just gone through the last few years. Um, there was a backlog, all the things that we weren't doing when we were focused very much on COVID and we are still riding. I think, I think collectively we're still riding the wave of all the things we needed to do and refocus our energy on um, that we didn't get to do for a year and a half or, or two years because we were focused on COVID. Um, and I think it's so important for as a leader that you are taking a step back and refocusing your uh, direction of your organization into to accomplishing a vision. Um, and I, you know, I know some people really glaze over when they talk about strategic planning, but it's very important to be able to articulate as a leader to your staff what the vision is for your emergency management program. Um, that's something that we've been doing uh, in an evolution this year because we didn't accomplish a lot of our strategic plan in the la in the last three years because of obvious reasons. Um, so as we look at what the deliverables are and what we want to focus on over the next three to five years, um, it's changed because we are taking into account everything we learned in COVID and the disasters that happened during COVID. Um, mm. And that's, I, I, I don't have the right answer on what the focus is. I told, I told my staff when they said, well, what do, you, what do you think we should be focusing on? And I said, I just feel like there's so many things. Mm. And so, <laughs> and so it's trying- spoken like a true emergency manager, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, and honing in on it, so it's taken a while for us to like think collectively about what we want to achieve. Um, but it's it's really important to be able to articulate that to your team. So and articulate what their role is in that, and no, and for them to feel like they have a role in that. Um, a recent. A very recent example of this was um, is as it relates to the state school safety program. Um, obviously, the threats have, have evolved in um, in the school environment in a very different way um, because of society's uh, reaction and impact of of, of COVID um, yeah. and a number of other things. But you know, I think a lot of people point to the mental health impacts of, um, of remote learning and, and uh, social isolation. Um, so school safety 
and what's needed, the tools that are needed in school safety are very different. Well, our program needs to evolve. And so we just had, we're having that conversation with our team and just being able to articulate what the vision is or that we need to redefine our vision has been, has been I think, um, uh, has really helped the, the staff in there uh, know that what they're trying to work for uh, and work towards. Um, and that was just a small example of just reaffirming that, um, no, I agree that we need to enhance and actually build out our programs some more. Um, this is how we need to work together to figure out how to do that. Um, that's a small, tiny example of like organizational, like managing organizational change. But I think um, it goes to every different aspect of state emergency management organizations because we're dealing with um, threats and hazards that are evolving at such a rapid pace that we're just fighting the closest alligator on a daily basis. Um, so it's very important, again, to take a step back and reaffirm the mission towards toward accomplishing the vision that you set for your agency. Well, there's uh, there's a whole conversation we could probably bring back on and, and maybe we can do like a round table talking about like burnout because there are so many things to talk about and just like how to lead. But the the magic where they're strategic. Uh, I've been on this train for a while. I wrote a, a essentially an article about how there's a hundred definitions of emergency management. I'm going to add one more and the rest die. And that is emergency management is strategic coordination of emergency services. Emergency services is the protection of life, property, and continuity of operations. So whether USAR is pulling people out of a, out of a house or Red Cross is sell, setting up a shelter, they're protecting people against a storm and they're protecting people against continuity of operations. And there's all this other stuff, but essentially um, it's, you, you, I mean, again, you called it out. Like we often fight the closest alligator. You also sound like a small business owner, by the way. Uh, that's like my my life on the daily. But we uh, are a small business. Well, yeah, I, I 30, mean, actually, in Vermont, I have, you. I have thirty staff. Yeah, that's in a small Vermont. business. Yeah, <laughs> small business. Good, good call out. Yeah, if you ever left government, you'd probably be really good at this stuff. Um, <laughs> the the reality is that like we have been doing that for so long i don't think people realize that we could get beyond the pond of alligators there is other things out there that we could address to stop the alligators from coming but there's just so many things happening it's hard to get beyond it anybody who at this point who does it tells me they don't want to do strategic planning i i have an honest inquiry if they are competent or not because and not competency in equating that to intelligence or stupidity or anything like that. I'm talking about competency as in the ability to effectively do your job because we have to get beyond it. Even the national IMAT, which is a, a response group out of FEMA, they are, they now have a future planning cell. They have strategic, you know, uh, you know, people in operations and planning because they know that we're only really good at doing one operational period, maybe two, maybe three. We need to start thinking like years down the road. Really great example for all the people on the show. I can't believe how many times I've talked about this is getting called out to a wildfire. They were looking at the wildfire. I was just a fly on the wall and doing my GIS. And I looked up and I said, you got to let it burn. You have too many assets in this one area. You should, let it, you should not let it burn in that area. It was a really small ch chunk. 
like, but it's like 60% contained. We're good and let it burn out. It's like, no, because I could see the topography. And if it burned out, they were going to have mudslides and take out the highway there in the winter when the winter came around. And luckily, you know, I, you know, I can put on that hat and come off pretty forceful when I want to, even though I wasn't the most important person in the room. You know, they did end up making that change. The problem is I had gotten there two weeks after that, uh, uh, two weeks into it. So the first two weeks, they weren't really looking at mudslides. And the winter came around. That same highway was hit multiple places by mudslides. And like other areas that didn't really matter, um, you know, they, they wanted to contain it. So again, just strategic thought here, cascading impacts, cascading decisions from your, your, your vision of what's going to mean. I could talk about that all day long. I will stop boring you. Uh, Erica, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. I like to geek out with people who are, again, I hate this term, thought leaders, but in, in a in major way, you're, you're doing things right. I've heard so many good things about the work you've done. And um, the first time you're on the show, you know, we got a lot of compliments because we had uh, somebody who really knows her job on here. And it's cleared that, you know, frequent flyer, hopefully is a positive term in my book, but we can have you come back on sometime and talk more about this stuff. Well, thank you very much, John. These conversations are never boring. And so I hope I, I hope yes. I can come back. Well, hold on one second. Hey, <laughs> we'll have you back on sometime. Everybody, if you got something out of this episode, we talked a lot about states. I kind of asked off the wall questions like national guards and their role. Erica gave great examples of why emergency majors have to be in charge of that stuff. We talked about NEMA and, and what that organization can provide. We talked about being in an influential leader. We talked about having the, the need to return to kind of normal operations for emergency management beyond COVID and what that looks like in the future. We talked about reflecting. If you're reflecting about some of the after actions, some of the things that you learned about this year, put it on social media, go to disaster tough podcast, share those lessons learned with the community. You know, we, we want to build up as a community. This is for education. If you also liked what Erica was saying, please let us know in those comments of this, these posts that we're going to put out and we'll see you for the next one. Thanks.